You're listening to part one of Parable Man, Jeremy Pierce's interview with Liza Citron about intersectionality. Welcome to the Parable Man podcast. I am Jeremy Pierce, the Parable Man, and I have a guest with me this episode, Liza Citron, who is a longtime uh, family friend. We've known her family for a while. Uh, she's a student at Syracuse University studying special education. I'll probably have her on as a guest to talk about other things and other episodes later on. We have a lot of overlapping interests, uh, particularly science fiction and fantasy. So I hope to uh, <laughs> draw on her uh, as, a, as a conversation partner to talk about some of that stuff in future episodes. But this episode, we're going to be talking about her as an interesting case for intersectionality because she has a number of different things that are true of her that uh, a lot of people would probably think are an unusual combination. And the fact that they're all coming together in one person is interesting. So we're just going to be talking about Liza today. <laughs> and she's going she's gonna to have a lot of things to, to say to us as a test case for intersectionality. I guess I should define intersectionality for those who are not familiar with that concept. So intersectionality is a term that is used in uh, social philosophy and related disciplines that uh, refers to overlapping identities. So someone might have two things that are true about them that are different from each other and have different features that come with them. And the reason the concept was developed by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw originally was that she wanted to point to ways that two identities could intersect and make that that were are involve difficulties that make the difficulties worse than it would for the combination itself. So, for example, if you're a, a single mother, you might have the difficulties that single people have. You might have the difficulties that mothers have, but you'll have some that you have some as a single mother that are neither true of most single people nor most mothers. So you have further difficulties that would come in. That's the idea of intersection, or that's the the application of intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw was trying to draw attention to. And her, her first major case where she was doing this was there were people who were discriminating against black women in hiring when they weren't discriminating against black people and they weren't discriminating against women. So it, it, there was discrimination going on, but looking at race and looking at gender wouldn't actually help you identify that. So in any case, that's the concept of intersectionality. I think it has all sorts of implications, many of which are not really thought about very hard and hopefully we'll actually get to some of those. Uh, I wanted to start off uh, with Liza explaining some things about herself and talking about how some different things interact with each other. So we'll start off with uh, the fact that she is affected by uh, a number, several different disabilities. So I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is now no longer in the DSM. I just refer to it generally as autism at age, four or five, I think. And I was diagnosed a couple different times, officially and unofficially over the course of my childhood as well. However, I really, while I had that diagnosis, I was limited from opportunities 
to interact with other autistic people because my parents thought, oh, it's nature versus nurture sort of thing. If she's around other autistic people, then she will absorb those behaviors. She will behave autistically. Here I am living proof that that is not exactly all it takes because I deal with some of the things that those behaviors that are typically autistic caused by different neurology or whatever it is that causes it in certain cases. It's not all nature and it's not all nurture, but it certainly isn't all nurture in this case because I still took on these behaviors without learning them from other autistic people as my parents thought I would. More recently, some other things have been cropping up. I, my mother has fibromyalgia and there is, I think a nine, you're nine times more likely to deal with fibro if someone else in your family also does, specifically a direct relative, not necessarily a grandmother or a cousin, but a mother, a sibling, a father, although there's a gender ratio there too, women are much more likely to be diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which we don't know the cause, but it's for people who don't know, something that can affect muscles, nerves. It's basically a disorder that causes pain, nerve pain, muscle pain, sometimes weakness and large amounts of fatigue. For anyone who's heard of chronic fatigue syndrome, some medical professionals and researchers suspect that those are two sides of the same coin. That CFS slash ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, might be two sides of the same coin with fibro, depending on what you present more with. If you present more with the muscle pain, i.e. myalgia, you'll get diagnosed with fibromyalgia. If you present more with the fatigue and weakness side of things, you'll get diagnosed with CFS or ME. That also comes with a whole bunch of other things that you can't really categorize because you don't know whether they're disabilities on their own or whether they're symptoms of the overarching disability, in this case, either fibro or autism. We, me and my doctors, suspect that I'm dealing with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which can come with fibro, but we also don't know why. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is greatly overrepresented in the autistic community. There are more autistic people than you would expect if you take the autistic people as a percentage of the general population and then insert that into the number of people who have been diagnosed with EDS, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There, there are so many more people than you would expect. And there's no no known reason for that. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is essentially a collagen disorder. So it can affect many different systems, many different aspects of your body, because as anyone who has done even the slightest bit of research into anatomy or medicine knows, collagen is everywhere. So there are a whole bunch of other things that come with the fibro and the EDS, such as dysautonomia, which is basically where your autonomic nervous system is not functioning properly. So for me, that comes in low blood pressure and tachycardia when I change position. There are a whole bunch of other things, like I said, but those are the main ones for, for physical disabilities.
I also, along with the autism, another case where you don't know whether it's the autism or the disorder or disability itself, OCD and ADHD both come with autism. So I deal with those, but I don't know whether that's as a part of the autism or something separate. The same goes for auditory processing disorder, which I deal with, which is why I, in my accommodations for college, have some many similar needs to what a hard of hearing person might. My hearing is fine, mostly. My processing is the issue. Understanding spoken words, understanding in loud, loud, not loudy, loud and noisy environments, and that sort of thing, which again, similar to what a hard of hearing person might need. But again, not sure whether that comes with the autism or is a separate disability in itself. Even within the disability area, there's so much intersectionality within that, which is interesting. And then I also deal with mentally uh, PTSD, anxiety, and depression. Those are the main ones, I think, <laughs> as if that wasn't enough. But the thing that people who aren't disabled or don't go through chronic pain don't understand is that, you know, you get used to it. I say these and they seem like such a long list and maybe they are, but you get used to it. You find your way of living with chronic pain. You find your way of adapting. I'm, a, I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user. Sometimes I use a wheelchair. Sometimes I use a cane. Sometimes I use crutches and sometimes I use nothing. And it's amazing how people's reactions will change when you're visibly disabled versus invisibly disabled. We talked about this recently, I think, in one of our other podcasts, Life Fantastic. The ways that people look at you when they know that you're different from them versus when you can just blend in with them is amazing. The things that they'll say or the ways that they'll treat you. When they don't know that you're disabled, they may treat you as just someone who's quote-unquote normal, typical, like them. When they know you're disabled, on the other hand, when your disability is visible, that changes. And I'm sure we'll get into that later when we talk about other aspects as well. There's one specific that I'm thinking of. But for the disability side of things, that's about it. I also work with a disability organization that actually... Dr. Pierce here, his wife leads, so I work with a nonprofit for disability. But yeah, on the disability front, I think that's pretty much it in describing what is going on. If there are specific experiences or specific things you want to ask, but I think that for what exactly is going on, that's, you know, we've covered it. Yeah, so I think when you talk about these different aspects of it, they seem like it's a list and there's a bunch of things. And I guess when you want to think about the intersectionality of it, one thing that comes to my mind is it's not just a list and each one has a bunch of different things. These will interact with each other. It, it might be that one of them is made worse by the presence of the other one. Mm -hmm. Or at least I, made different yeah, by the certainly. presence of the other one. I spend probably... On my bad days, I can spend, if I can even take a shower, <laughs> you know, some fatigue and stuff. But on my bad days, I can spend up 10 minutes trying to figure out the temperature that will make a shower bearable. 
because with the fibro, sometimes it'll be cold little heart, but then sometimes with the dysautonomia, if I'm in a warmer environment, my blood pressure will lower and I'll be more likely to faint. So it makes a lot of things, it changes the way a lot of things take place. And as we were discussing, the fact that we don't know what exactly is a condition on its own or a symptom of something else. I mean, that's intersectionality basically in action there. And when you describe the effects of it, it just, that proves intersectionality, essentially. And I just think about when you're doing your schoolwork, what, um, what these different things are going to bring to, 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 into play. So you're going to have processing issues. You're going to take longer to process things, whether you're reading it or hearing it, but apparently hearing it is worse. Yes. And, but there still might be processing issues with reading. Uh, reading is more due to the fatigue more than right. anything, the brain fog, which right. comes from probably the fibro, but we don't know. And then, um, so if, if you're I mean, doing Zoom classes, as you are <laughs> in the current moment, <laughs> you, know, you, ha you normally will have your automatic transcriber going, right? Yep, captions. So and it'll caption it as you, as they're talking, which isn't perfect, but it helps. No, and one of the ways, one of the things people don't think of is that I can't take notes because if I look down at my paper, I'm going to have a very hard time or look down at another window, though that's a little bit easier. I'm going to have a hard time knowing exactly what the lecturer is saying. So I have a peer note taker. I just have their notes given to me. But that's because, not because it's it makes it easier for me, but because it makes it possible. I can't, you know, because of the combination of the autism and the auditory processing disorder and the fatigue, I am unable to take notes because I will not be able to understand what the professor is saying if I look at my notes for a long, long amount of time. So there's a there's a question of what you can focus on. You can't focus on both things at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And that's common with autism. There's a degree of that that everyone has, but it's more it's more elevated with autism. And with ADHD. Yep. Uh, if ADHD, particularly ADHD inattentive, mm -hmm. there's 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 parts of your brain, the frontal lobe particularly, that isn't getting as much. I don't know if it's the neurotransmitters or something, but it's you're, it's not it's not functioning in the same way. It's not functioning in the people. same way it would in a neurotypical person. Yeah. yeah. And, and and that combined with the fact that you have the audio processing as well. Now, someone who didn't have the focusing issue could watch the person's face and what they're saying, also read the transcription, and then take some notes. Maybe. <laughs> but, but with 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 the with the focusing, uh, where you're not able to focus on several things at once, you can't do that. Yep. And but you would, it's you actually would get it all wrong. Yeah, it's actually similar to what I need for the auditory processing disorder. Another case where it overlaps with a hard of hearing individual. Hard of hearing people often get an accommodation of a peer note taker as well for the exact reason I said. If I'm looking at the captions, it's very difficult for me to look away and be able to take notes on the captions 
if I'm not looking at them and I can't hear or understand in my case, what the professor is saying. And then I think when you throw in the mental health issues, someone who has executive function that's not impaired, I think has an easier time dealing with depression than someone who yes. has an impaired executive function. And it will therefore probably affect the ways you can organize your life in order to deal with depression. I think if you recognize that, as you do, you understand these things about yourself, that, that these things come together and make things, one of them by itself would be difficult, another by itself would be difficult, but when you combine the two, you're creating something that's even more difficult than the two things by themselves. It yeah. seems like a, like a clear case of exactly the kind of thing that Kimberly Crenshaw had in mind when she came up with the concept of intersectionality. I, uh, I mean, she had in mind ways that society makes things more difficult for people, but these are just things that are true about you. Mm -hmm. And while it's true that we can accommodate some of them to some degree, and we should <laughs> to some degree, these are things that are part of you. They're impairments that are present. Re regardless of how anyone accommodates them, they're still going to be there. Yeah, yeah. The fact that the accommodation is even necessary is something that's true about yourself. And you've never known anything different in some of these cases, right? For the autism, yeah. And this yeah, really some gets into- Right, some of this really, stuff developed. Yeah, and this really gets into what exactly is considered a disability. There's a video by a deaf YouTuber I follow. She says, she always says that she's deaf and disabled. Why? Because she has similar pain conditions to some of the ones I mentioned and similar other conditions. The symptom profiles are, are certainly similar, even if they're not the same, same condition. She always says she's deaf and disabled because her chronic pain is inherently disabling. Her fatigue is inherently disabling regardless of what accommodation she uses or she has. But her deafness, <laughs> when we're not in a pandemic, at least with everyone wearing masks and, Oof, don't get me started on that one. She lip reads relatively well. She can, she speaks, she's verbal. And she gets through her life relatively well, despite the fact she's deaf. So she doesn't, she doesn't know whether she would because she's always been some level of lessened hearing, whether that's hard of hearing when she was in her teens or mostly profoundly deaf now, but she thinks that were she not disabled in the other way, she wouldn't consider her deafness a disability, which is why she states it separately. And that really gets into societal accommodations and where exactly accommodations kind of solve the issue and where exactly it's inherently an aspect of you, an impairment versus a societal assumption where her deafness isn't disabling inherently, whereas her chronic pain and fatigue are an impairment that's inherent to her and inherently disabling. So that, yeah, that gets to this big debate in disability studies. <laughs> so yes. um, what is a disability? So I think what is the current orthodoxy among academics and activists? <laughs> 
is the social model of disability. Uh, if you hold to another view, you are very much marginalized. I think yes in in our current in our current uh, academic uh, community. But um, I tend to think, and I, I know that you are at least somewhat in the same direction, that the social model can overstate things. But it's not. It's not bad. It's not bad inherently. But there are some things that it can overstate. Oh, and also we forgot to mention. I'm minoring in disability studies. So in addition to being disabled, knowing these few things from that perspective, this is my area. So I, the social model of disability basically says impairment is what's there. That i.e. my has, fatigue that, that you can't do anything about. You, you can't you could try to accommodate it or you could fail to accommodate it, but it's there and it's not going away and it might impede some of your functionality in various ways. Whereas disability, as they define it, is something that society basically imposes on you by not accommodating your impairments. This is not how the federal government defines disability, and it's not how the majority of the population understands that term. It, it's, it's, it's a technical jargon that is defined by academics and activists in a certain way, and I think it causes confusion when you have people conversing with each other who don't realize that. Yeah. It, it, it really does. And, and my fellow academics do not see that. And it annoys me greatly. Yes. So for example, um, I have glasses on right now. I have 20-20 vision according to the doctor, but they don't test reading. They test for driving because that's the only reason I had them test it. I had to get approved to be able to get my license renewed and I wanted to be able to do it without glasses on. And they tested me and said I have 20-20 vision, but when I try to read small text, I need glasses now. I always had near-perfect vision all of my life until the last few years, and then I just started to realize with small text, I just can't see it anymore. I need glasses to see it. So I've been wearing glasses every time I sit at my computer, every time I'm reading anything, every time I'm using my phone, I have to have glasses on now because I just can't see small text. I'm developing a disability of sorts, right? Not a not a very serious one that interferes with most of my life, but I mean, we we have a son who has autism who will do things that he really shouldn't be doing. They're dangerous. They're harmful, like putting things in the microwave that shouldn't go in there. So we have to have locks on everything. So and I can't see the lock to unlock the microwave and lock it up again without my glasses on. So I find that if I don't have my glasses, I I I'm trying to struggle to see this thing and trying a combination and it doesn't work. And then I have to go get my glasses and, and get it right. So I can actually open the lock or unlock or lock it up again. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm the, yes, we have a way in our society to accommodate this. We have eyeglasses and it's great. It helps people so that they can function, even though their vision is impaired. Uh, as long as there is some vision left and it's, and it's correctable through, glasses or contacts or whatever you might have. But the fact that you need the glasses to do the thing means there's still something present. Yep. So to try to define the disability as just whatever society can't accommodate and then say the impairment is the other thing. It's just, okay, I get it if you're going to use the words that way, but it's not how people normally use the words. No. People would say that if you're if you have difficulty seeing something, you have a disability. The way that the way that the, the social model tries to define the terms, it's like my disability goes away when I put my glasses on. Well, not really. The disability is the underlying thing that they're calling an impairment. 
And that's how the federal government defines it, and that's how most people use that word. So I think they're just misusing language in order to try to, to make a distinction that's a distinction that's worth making. But I, I think, I don't know, I think we don't have a word for the condition created by society <laughs> that is the fact that someone has a disability that's not accommodated. Yeah. So we just don't have a word for that. So in any case, that's, that's my, my beef with the social model. Yeah. I think what I wanted, what I wanted, really wanted to get into here, I think that's worth going through because people don't always um, know that terminology and how it's being used. Yep. And of course, this gets into the difference, differences between uh, prescriptivism and descriptivism, which I'm sure we can get into in a future podcast if we talk linguistics, whether it's in the form of conlangs. Uh, i.e. constructed languages or anything of the sort. I'm sure we're going to get into linguistics in some way someday, and we'll touch more yeah. on that, but age-old debate in linguistics. Yeah, so I, there's there's definitely, I mean, that's just in how you use language. Should we use language the way that everyone uses it, or, or is there some right way that we should recommend, right? And And you could have a mix of those views as well for different things, too. Certainly, I think the general approach among linguists is descriptivism. What they're doing as scientists is trying to analyze what language is and how it works. Yes. They're not trying to tell you how to use it. But you can certainly have moral views on how we should use language. You can think these words are ones no one should ever use. These words we should use in this way. If you use it that way, it's bad and so on. So, and, and, that, and if you're in the, in, in the business of trying to figure out how we should respond to the fact that people have disabilities? How should we handle that in our society? How we use our language is certainly something that we can get into as an issue. We can, we can raise those questions. And uh, right, well, which words should we use and how should we use them? So I, I do think we need a way to make a distinction between what they are calling impairment and what they are calling a disability. But I think that the word disability in most people's minds means what they're calling impairment. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's not the way to, we need to come up with a new word for it or find a way that people are describing that rather than yeah, using a word that already is attached to a particular meaning in daily use. Or just say at the outset what you mean. Here's how I'm going to use yeah. these words. But the problem is when people just have short conversations and they use terms on Facebook and Twitter and so on, they're, they're not explaining what they mean. No, they're not. And they'll say things that, sound wrong to most people or perhaps even sound offensive to most people and this happens i mean i my primary philosophical work has been in race and i see that happening with race all the time so it's it's certainly going to happen with other things too and i mean with gender for example um gender versus sex and so on so uh, yeah there's definitely uh ways that people use language at the popular level that differ from how academics and activists who are very informed about that issue and have absorbed certain ways of thinking about it are going to talk about it. In this case, though, I, I think if we're going to use the, the sort of the, the, the way that disability activists and academics talk about it, there are sides of your disabilities that, that really come from what they call impairments. They're things that yes. are part of you and they're not going to go away no matter how we accommodate. Yeah, and no, there's no things... way the brain fog, there's no way that the brain fog is going to go away. Trust me, I've tried. <laughs> and there isn't really medication that no that deals with that. 
No, there, there, there are ways that medications you can deal with some things. For example, executive function can be helped by taking a stimulant. And I'm on I'm on sertraline, so it, there there's another example. Is that a stimulant? Uh, antidepressant. I didn't think that was a stimulant, but maybe it is. No, it's not. It's um, an antidepressant. Oh, okay. So that will help with some things. Yes. Yeah. I'm not saying it helps so. with the same thing, but that's an example of a medication helping with an impairment to the point where it might no longer be an impairment. And is that is that an SSRI? Yes. It is. So what that does is it, it, it enables you to receive the chemicals that your brain produces to give you appreciation for things that you like, that are good. Yeah. It enables you to absorb them. That's what it does. And so you can appreciate the things that you like when someone who's severely depressed wouldn't be doing so. Right. I think that's the idea behind how, how yes. it works. Essentially, yeah. So, and, and that's what I think the most common way of medicating for depression is just to get people's brains to help them like the things they like, right? Yep. Something like that. And so that's a way to medically treat a condition that's neurological. Is that an accommodation of sorts? Yes. It's not quite the same way of accommodating as building a ramp or putting an elevator in or signing uh, in uh, as a translation of someone speaking or putting um, written text up uh, in, a, in a transcript or, or whatever, allowing someone to take extra time on an exam. All of these are different ways of accommodating disabilities. And what they're doing is they're allowing that person to have equal access or not even equal usually, but improved access, access. Closer, closer to what other people have in a way that allows them to do the same things that other people are doing, or at least get closer to doing the same things that other yep. people are doing in a way that's closer to how it's done by other people uh, with the same ease that other people have with it and that sort of thing. So there certainly is something that we can do as a society or as individual people to accommodate a disability and bring them closer to the level of functionality that other people have then there are the things that you can't do that with. <laughs> and no. you have both. You have both kinds, right? So it's it's accommodations are helpful to you. Not just helpful, but there are things that you wouldn't be able to do at all without them. Yes, so, very much so. So that's one side of, of, of you. Intersectionality and, within intersectionality. <laughs> right. There's intersectionality just within the different sides of the disabilities that you have. What about some other sides of your life there's a few i don't know which one uh talk about how about you pick one and one of the ones right, we how about we do the ethno-religious stuff <laughs> yes okay join us next time for part two of parable man jeremy pierce's interview with liza citron about intersectionality